But as we gather now together, as we have uh, sung the praises of our Savior, we now look to the scriptures and examine in particular this morning what it means to live out um, this new life in Christ. We have been studying through the book of Ephesians, and we are at the last, last paragraph of uh, um, Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, we'll be looking at verses 25 to 32. And what we mean by living out the new life is simply this. So far, we have been talking about throughout the book or the letter to the Ephesian Christians, we've been talking about what it means that God has planned our salvation from before the universe was ever created. In other words, I think the depth of chapter one is to remind us that God's intention in our salvation is much deeper, much richer, that his grace and his love and his sovereignty converge together in such a way that he has had us in mind to rescue us from before anything was ever in existence. Before he laid out the universe, he knew those that he wanted to rescue to spend eternity with him. The impossibility of the task is emphasized in chapter 2 because we were, all of us, born into a sin nature. We're by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins, and the hopelessness of what it means that we are sinners, not just some of us, but every single human being, save one. We are sinners through and through. And the reality and the effect of sin goes tragically deep, whether it's physical, and we will all physically die, which is, by the way, a subcategory of what death is. The spiritual death, that's the significant thing. It's the reason why we will all perish unless the Lord returns for us. But it's not just physical. It's relational. It's spiritual. It is, it is all those things that we just can't get our minds around. Why our life is so uneasy. Why the discontentments never stop. Why our struggle with sin never seems to cease. All of these things are because it's baked into our being. This is how impossible it is to rescue sinners. So that human beings can't rescue other human beings. A systematized right, philosophy of life cannot rescue human beings. A human religion cannot rescue human beings. It takes the sacrifice of the God-man Jesus Christ to pay the full penalty of the weight of our sins to rescue human beings. And so the redeemed, that would be those that have placed their faith in Christ alone, they have been bought by a price that is an eternally valuable price. And those that are of the redeemed, then, they are not just left alone in the world as as lone lights to hopefully do the best that they can, but they are to be gathered like we are gathered today. They are to be gathered into a community, into what Scripture calls the body of Christ. And every one of them given gifts. This was all of chapter 3. Given abilities, given a mixture of talents and personalities so that they might have a uniqueness that they offer to the body of Christ. It is a reminder that we need each other because no one has all the gifts. Neither is all the gifts accounted for whenever you gather everyone together. It is that we are together in this unique way, adding to one another and becoming the hands, the feet, the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. That's why we are the body of Christ. But what does this look like? 
What does this look like as it's fleshed out? Well, that's chapters four, five, and six. It gets to some specifics. In fact, as we've, as we've begun chapter four, it, the scriptures emphasize the idea that we are one body. In fact, it uses terminology that we could translate that we are one new man, one new humanity, that there is no Jew, there's no Gentile, right? There's no this or that or he or them, right? There is, there is in all of us, just the body of Christ and members of it. So that when we understand how unified the body of Christ is because of the gospel, then the question is, okay, so what does that look like? Well, it looks like the ministry of the word. It looks like us hearing and thinking. And do you remember that the last couple of weeks, there's this tremendous emphasis on scripture Right? Even when it talked about gifts, it talked about those spiritual gifts in particular that, that revolved around right, the ministry of the word. And then earlier, right, when we looked at the verses 17 to 24, uh, the scriptures talk about how, how we are supposed to think in a certain way. It says, now this I say, therefore, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, with darkened understanding alienated because the hardness of heart. All of those are categories that speak of what they are on the inside, how they think, what their worldview is, what colors their perception of their experience in this life. But we're different. We're supposed to to live and think in a way that's different from that. Verse 19 in chapter 4 says, they have become callous and given themselves over to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. And verse 20 is a turning point. What does the redeemed thought life look like? But that is not the way you learned Christ. See, the learned Christ, is not the emphasis there is not on how you gain salvation, how you experience the Christian existence. No, it's saying you learned Christ. There is something in your minds, in your hearts, that understood the gospel. And it goes on to say, assuming that you have heard about him, that you are taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Then you put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, corrupt and evil desires, and you renew the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self. So this is what we're talking about. By the time we get to verses 25 to 32, it is, it is the practicalities. It is the reality. This is what it looks like. If you say this is the theory, well, the theory is that we have been taught differently. We have a different truth. We have a different way of thinking about ourselves and this life and our God, and that propels us forward. That's the thought life of the Christian. This is the hands and feet in motion. This is what it means to live out this new life in Christ. Up to this point in the Ephesian letter, um, grammatically, the imperative tense as far as I could count, happens only once. It might have been a second one that I just missed, right? But as far as I know, only one imperative through all of Ephesians 1 through 4, right? 16. Or, when no, no, wait, where are we picking up? 25. 24, right? From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4, verse 24, there's one imperative that I counted. In this particular portion of Scripture, verses 25 to 32, there are 11. It tells you that the weight of some of the commands, this is the way that you live this out, right, comes right here in a concentrated form. But lest we forget how we get here, 
right? And all we do is just gravitate towards th- these things. And then we make ourselves a checklist of all the things we're supposed to do or not to do. Understand that there is in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 3, and in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 24. And all of it is guiding our thinking, our hearts. It's trying to saturate our minds so that we're thinking gospel-centered, Christ-centered, redemption-focused, new, new thoughts and new life on the inner man. So that all these commands that will flow out, we, we understand that they are inspired and helped by the Holy Spirit's ministry of the truth of God's word and through the ministry of the word to our souls so that because we think right, we then now have the capacity to do what is right. So let me read you this portion of scripture and then we'll unpack it. We'll be moving kind of quickly because, like I said, there's like 11 imperatives. We'll be categorically kind of separating them out. But this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Shall we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we beseech you now to allow us to understand your scriptures well. We ask that your Holy Spirit, that he would instruct us in ways that are both convicting and helpful, that we may recognize, Lord, the fleshliness of our own thoughts. Maybe the, the, the fleshliness, the humanness of our own concepts of how we become more holy. But that we would give those things up to our God and believe that the transformational work of the Spirit through the ministry of the Word is more than sufficient to make us live right. That when we think about all these areas that we might falter in, that we see in them opportunities for us to grow in gospel grace. And that we would live in such a way that is so distinctly Christian that it would call others to wonder what it is about our hope in this life why we live the way that we do. Lord, would you make us a distinct people so that we might draw attention to the gospel of your glory and that all the good things that we have in Christ might be a testimony in our lives of how good of a God we serve and how you deserve all the glory. So may we glorify you even in the receiving of your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Living out, oh, here we go. Living out the new life, right? So we can break it down to three sections, which will kind of categorize uh, some of the commands in them to walk in Christian integrity, to walk in spirit-minded ministry, and to walk in redeemed consistency. So let's begin with the first one, to to walk in Christian integrity, verses 25 through 28. 
In fact, if we look at verse 25, uh, it, it speaks, right? So verse 25 through 28 speaks particularly of how we are to, to involve one another, or how we are to speak truth one to another because we are members of each other. So that's what I mean by the Christian integrity, that each of these things that are stated here, right, um, in uh, verses 25 through 28, all of them involve some form of truthfulness or integrity or honesty. The first, point A, is truthful speaking, right? To speak or to interact with each other with speech that is free from falsehood. Look at verse 25. Therefore, again, this therefore builds on all the previous. It's about how we think. It's about the truth of God and the gospel and how that transforms our thinking. We don't think as the Gentile, the pagan world thinks. We think as new believers, as those that trust in God and his revelation to us. Therefore... If we're to think as Christians, then this is how we live. Having put away falsehood. You see that statement again? We are not a people of falsehoods. We don't just have traditions that are based on mythologies. We don't just have an oral tradition that we kind kind of manufacture and we keep with. Right? We believe in a truth that's monolithic. You know what monolithic is? We usually use that term just to mean that something's big. But it means that it is large and unchanging. That's the scriptures. That's why God gave us the scriptures in written form. He canonized a written word that is our religious codex, right? And by doing that, he he makes it monolithic. It doesn't change. Certainly, we need to to kind of interpret it. And as language changes, as as, uh, our culture changes, we need to update the language of our versions, right? of our language, if we go into another language or another country. I mean, we, we need to go from the original and translate it out. But nevertheless, it is, it is set in stone. It stands written is a good translation for many of the times when Scripture says it has been written. It stands that way. And because of that, part of what we hold to as believers, part of our characteristic as those that are redeemed by the blood of Christ, if you have called upon the name of Jesus Christ, have confessed your sins and said, Lord, I deserve nothing from you, but I believe everything that you have said and I place my faith wholly in who you are. My life is yours. If you have prayed a prayer like that and set your path towards serving Jesus Christ and his glory, you have agreed, it is categorically true, that first statement that you have put away falsehood. You have chosen no longer to, to, to live the lie. Why? Because that is so inconsistent with who God is. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's 1 John 1, 5, right? Hebrews 6, 18 is just kind of a throwaway, kind of, you know, a secondary kind of thing. When talking about God, God makes these promises, and it says in there as, a, as kind of a, a parenthetical phrase, God cannot lie. This God cannot be untruthful. Right? When we think of John chapter 1, Jesus Christ, he is the embodiment of grace and truth. And earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, we read it already, right? Back starting in verse 20, that's not the way you learned Christ, right? Not the way that the pagans think about what life is all about. Assuming that you have heard him, about him, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Everything about our God speaks truth. So the follower of Jesus Christ has already, by his character and confession, started to put away falsehood. 
And if that's the case, it's assumed that that's the case. Therefore, having already put away falsehood, then let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. There's a quotation that comes from Zechariah 8, um, 16, in a portion of scripture where this is post-exilic. Post-exilic, meaning that, you remember, if we just do a super quick run through um, Old Testament uh, Israel history, right? David was king over united Israel, and then uh, Solomon was king over united Israel. After Solomon, the kingdom is divided into two, right? Jeroboam to, to the north. Um, Rehoboam to the south. And then from then on, there's the kings, the southern kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah, right? And all those kings. There's the northern kingdom. They're often called Israel. Sometimes they're called Ephraim, right? That is the northern kingdom with almost all the tribes except for Judah and Benjamin. They're sometimes at war. Sometimes they help each other, right? Most of the kings are bad. Well, during all that times, they are sinful. And then Assyria 722 takes these guys away. 722, yes. And then later, right, Babylon comes and takes away these guys into exile. So, so the nation of Israel, even if it's broken in two, they're all scattered. They are all given over to the great, great world empires of that day. That's the exile. Post-exilic means they've come back. At least some strain of them have come back. And in their struggle, and see if this sounds familiar, they are surrounded by a pagan mindset. They are what they're supposed to be by identity, but everything around them is pagan. They're constantly tempted to kind of blend in with the people that are now here. They believe the same American dream or back then the Palestinian dream, right? They're after the same kind of things. They, their concepts of what life is like, what love is like, what hate is like, what we're supposed to pursue and what our purposes are like, they're constantly being fed from all the pagan thinking around them. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's just like every believing culture and community in all time, including the New Testament church. And it's in that context that Zechariah is saying, listen, there is so much that has happened, so much that has gone wrong, and you, you need not fear. In fact, these are the things, is Zechariah 8, 16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You are to be a people of truthfulness. Why? Because that's who I am and you represent me. So putting aside falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. Why? Because we're members of each other. We're members of each other in the body of Christ. We, not just me, but we together represent God's truth. And that's like we always shy away from falsehoods. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but train yourself instead for godliness. Godliness is on the other side of the room from silly mythological traditions, right? Don't do things because they seem like something that we can make a myth around, a tradition around. Do them because they are true and godly. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, we, we are to be a people of truthfulness. And we are to do that because we are representing God who is true, who cannot lie. And we are representing Christ as his body. 
so that our interaction with one another has to be has to be open and honest. Listen, this is what we mean when we say we are to speak truth to one another. It means that sometimes we have to have a moment of honest confession. And we have to be willing to say, hey, this is, this is some stuff I'm struggling with. And it should come, uh, it should be received, and we'll see later, not with judgment, but with understanding and grace and encouragement and hope. It's not, it's, it, it is, it, speaking truth to, to one another is not exaggerating, right? Something that either I have done or someone else has done against me. It's not making myself look good and hiding the things that don't look good. It's not taking credit for stuff that I haven't done. Right? It's not using words to look or sound or speak as if I am something that I am not or that I'm better than I am. It's not playing a role. Because you know the New Testament word for playing a role? It's the Greek word that we get our English term hypocrite from. It means to play the part. That is the opposite of what Christians should be. And isn't it curious that one of the things that your, your, your unbelieving co-worker, one of, one of his classic arguments to come against you know, becoming a Christian or coming visiting the church is because he's convinced that the church is full of hypocrites. If that is true, and too often it may be true, that is to the shame of the body of Christ. And it brings shame to the name of Jesus Christ. Because we are his representatives, and if there's nothing else, we should speak truthfully, right, in everything that we do. Let me give you one quote from a pastor, John McKay. He says, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. This is so because a lie is a sable shaft from the kingdom of darkness. Sable meaning longsword, right? Uh, There is no place in the Christian ethic for the well-intentioned lie. In the moral behavior which Christ inspires, the end never justifies the means. We are a people of truth, and we ought to speak honestly and humbly as people of truth. Truthful speaking. B, under point one, is righteous anger. Look at verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry. It's a command. So, all right, let's just, ah, like all of us would be mad at each other all the time. We're all like, the, the question is, what does that mean, right? Um, because let, let's define anger first and foremost. Anger is the emotional response, right, that flows out of perceived injustice. Follow that with me, right? In other words, um, Anger is how you feel if you perceive that something's not right. Dude, that's not okay. That's not okay that he cut me off. That's not okay that he took cuts in front of me when I'm in that line for my Costco hot dog, right? That's not okay, right? That's not okay that so-and-so did this or so-and-so that. It's also, right, it could be like, again, I noticed that I used the word perceived injustice because it can be that, but can also be like, man, it's not okay the way he looked at me. Or the way that he disrespects me, right? Maybe he does, or maybe he doesn't. See, it's when we perceive that something's not the way that we think it ought to be, whether it's in society, whether it's in politics, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in our studies, if we feel like it's not right, the emotional response is what we term anger. So theoretically, anger is not always wickedness. There are some things that should make us angry, right? 
If someone's being abused, we should be kind of upset with that. That shouldn't be okay. We should feel like, dude, that's, that's not okay. And it should raise our ire, right? If someone's being victimized, that should bother us. It bothers us enough to say something, to do something, even if it's at risk to ourselves, because we feel like, no, something in me tells me this is not okay. So there's a righteous form of anger. In fact, that's the kind of anger that we see throughout Scripture most abundantly in the character of God himself. He judges wicked people in the Old Testament that are offering, they're killing their babies and sacrifice to their gods, right? Kill the babies, build them into the walls of their city, Right? So as, as kind of a, a standing, kind of sacrificial way of saying, this is how dedicated we are to you, our pagan and fake God. God hates that. He's angered by that. And he calls destruction upon entire societies because of these injustices. God has a righteous anger. So anger can be righteous. But for us, in our experience, let's be honest. The vast majority of our emotional outbursts, as far as anger is concerned, is all about my perceived, right, injustice towards me is usually self-focused and is usually sinful. It's usually me on the throne of greatness and you not giving proper reverence. So anger usually and understandably when we see it, we think immediately of sin. But here it must not be sin. Why do I say that? Because the command literally is be angry and yet do not sin. If this anger is sinful anger, then the do not sin is too late. I don't even know why you bother to say that, right? We're talking about an emotional response to something that is not right and, the, and not allowing that to bleed over into a physical, verbal, or emotional response that indeed does touch itself with my sinfulness. So I, I think, right, and that's, I think it's the traditional view, that this idea of being angry, this is a quote actually from Psalm 4, and Psalm 4 uses it in a similar way. Psalm 4, 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. And listen to the rest. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I think if you kind of think about that, the context of Psalm 4 seems to say the same thing, that there's an emotional kind of reaction to something that is not right, but it's saying slow down, think carefully, be silent. Offer sacrifices, worship, and then trust in the Lord. And then you figure out what is best to be done. I I think it's that same kind of thing. Paul is saying there are times when righteous anger will rise in your soul because there are things that just are not right, things that are offensive to the name of Jesus Christ. He says, but do that, or in the midst of that, while that's happening, do not sin. He goes further. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, set yourself a limit. And again, I, I don't think this is literally about sunsets, etc. Because then if that's the case, then I hope that I get angry after sunset because I got almost 23 hours, right, of being mad before I have to resolve this stuff. The idea is to resolve this in a manner that is so timely, so quick, that it seems like I'm trying to take care of this while the day is still today. To take care of this anger quickly and soon to wrestle with that, to lift it up in prayer, to take it to the Lord, and whatever I do to guard myself from letting it go to the point of sin. You might be upset like with your child or with your spouse, with your roommate. That always happens, right? With with whoever, your coworker. 
And your anger might, might be at least to some degree justified. But there is a thin line that you can cross from this is righteous anger. I'm right to say this because it's so wrong that they're cheating our work group or they're not doing their part or they are, they're being so cruel or they, they speak so meanly or whatever. You might be right with that. But then as you start to use your minds, the, these minds, these wonderful imaginations and, uh, and abilities for us to think that God has given to us, as we've been reading about in the early part of chapter four, we can be like the Gentiles, meaning we can be like us before Christ. And we can start thinking like, yeah, how dare they talk to me that way? How dare they treat me? I'm better than that. In fact, I should say something back. That fool doesn't have any reason to talk to me like I am less important than I should be talking to him. That And you could build up in your own imaginations the things that you should say, the bad things that should happen to their lives. It's not hard for us. And if I'm not hitting it, this at, at, at home in your own heart, you are a most gracious individual. But I know for our own selves, for my own self, that it's easy for me to wander from being maybe semi-righteously angry to sinfully angered just by the machinations of my own mind and imagination and thinking through, why would they do that? Why did they do that? How dare they do that? And, and how they, they treat me that way, right? Like, like we go to that and make it sin and make it about ourselves quite easily and saying, take care of that part before it becomes sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. But look at verse 27, which I think... It's particularly insightful. And give no opportunity to the devil. You notice in your English translations that that's still a continuing part of this one sentence. Verse 26 and 27 is one sentence. Be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger unto the point of it becoming sinful to your soul. And that's equivalent to giving an opportunity for the devil. The devil delights in our angry hearts. Why? Because the manifestation of that usually tears relationships apart. It injures each other. It's like slow stabs at each other, right? And if you think about the context of the body of Christ and how we are members of one another, we had just read that, right? They were to speak truth to one another because we're all members of one another. The greatest thing that the devil could accomplish, the thing that he would prey on the most, would be that if we would stab and devour and bite one another, if anger could have its fuel and fire in the midst of the body of Christ. That could destroy unity very quickly. Just like that dinner, right? That gathering amongst the family, it just takes one argument or one explosive outburst of anger. There it goes. That's the evening. That's what would take away from what could have otherwise been a delightful time. I mean, that, that's how anger works. So James 1, 19-20 says, Know this, my bro- beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, be fast, to listen, to hear someone out, to to ask questions and to to honestly let them speak. Be slow to speak, to add in your voice, to demonstrate your capacities, to show how wise and intelligent you are. Slow that up, right? And be slow to anger. In verse 20 in James 1 says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is a thing that you should underline in your own minds, Right? You are mad because this person has fallen into sin. That might be a righteous anger. But I guarantee you, your anger, your human anger, Nam's anger, has no capacity to produce righteousness in them. Right? So, and there's a tremendous parenting point. 
our anger at our kids, when they sin, when they act crazy, when they act out of line, etc. No matter how angry you get, yeah, you might control their behavior for a moment. But that does not cause sanctification. Human anger is not a means of grace. It's not a means by which human beings can be sanctified, right? God's truth is a means of sanctification. Our anger, if it's righteous, responds because there is sin and brokenness. But if it's sinful, oh, the devil has found a very clean, clear opportunity to tear apart relationships and to infuse in people a bitterness that would drive them away from the things of Christ and his church. Righteous anger. Be free from bitterness. Verse 28, point C. Honest work. You notice that all of these, right? Truthful speaking, righteous anger, honesty. The idea is that we are walking in Christian integrity. That's the point. Um, C, verse 28, honest work. This is what verse 28 says. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it says, let the thief no longer steal. The term for thief is, is given to us in a verbal form that means he's a thieving one. This is what he is characterized by. This guy makes his living thieving. Either that or he's one that is known, at least by God, as uh, identified as one that likes to steal. What I find interesting is it is unlikely that we're talking about someone that is actually a professional cat burglar that happens to be a Christian in the Ephesian church. Highly unlikely, right? In the same way that, you know, that you guys, you know, are a channel for, uh, for I, don't, I don't know, for laundering money for a drug cartel, but you love Jesus Christ and you want to be part of his church. Highly unlikely, right? These things don't kind of, they don't fit well. And nevertheless, there is among them someone who will be characterized as thieving. And let him stop stealing. And the, the verbal tense of that is let him no longer steal. That's a good translation by the ESV. It implies that that individual is still at that. So I think a lot of good commentators think that what we're talking about is something along the lines of white-collar crimes. You're thieving, but more like you're pilfering. Like God knows that you are stealing from your workplace, from your employer, from you know, whatever kind of program that you get something from. You may be cheating on your taxes. You, you might be you know, cheating on your timesheet. You might be cheating in your classwork, right? Or taking things that aren't you know, yours to take. And stocking up on, you know, I don't know, all the drinks that, that are in the fridge or something at the workplace. I don't, I don't know what it could be. The whole idea is that you are, you are pilfering in ways that demonstrate that you are trying to take advantage of this life for yourself. And that there's something dishonest about that. And that doesn't represent the gospel of Jesus Christ or our Savior well. Instead of that, instead of pilfering, instead of trying to get away with stuff, instead of trying to angle away to get the best things that we want in this life in the most expedient way possible, instead of looking for a different angle to profit or to gain, labor. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor. It's a term for work that means exactly that, hard work. It is used for 
you know, sweat-breaking kind of hard work. It means let him work diligently. It goes on, doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Don't, don't you see the transformational gospel nature of what is being commanded here? This is an individual who, who might have a reputation for pilfering. Instead of using his five-finger discount, right, to get stuff for himself, Use all of yourself. Work hard with your own hands. Work so hard that there's an abundance beyond what you need, and it gives you an opportunity, right, to share with someone who else, someone else who has need. How transformational the gospel can be in our work ethic, and how hard we work, and how diligently we labor. How personal it is, because we are doing it with our own hands. We're not asking someone else, hey, you know, since I'm your boss, can you do this? Can you do this? And can you sell a few of these things? And I'm going to use that money. I'm going to go do that here. It's like, no, this is with our own hands. This is what we do. This is a personal hard work in order to be more generous. And so this individual has moved from self-centered pilfering greed to Christ-centered, right? extravagant generosity. It doesn't say this individual has enriched himself, that he's, you know, he's doing something, he's crazy wealthy, and so he has a, a, a tremendous abundance. It means that he works hard in order to share with those else, those outside of himself that might have need. There's a really crazy story. Um, this is a couple of centuries ago of a pastor, Roland Hill, who um, at the funeral of one of his favorite employees, he shocked everyone in attendance when he told the story of how this man became his employee over the years. Their first meeting, with, the first meeting he had ever had with this man was when this individual attempted um, to hold Dr. Hill up. Like, like not just, you know, oh, could you wait? Like, you know, like, like give me your money. You know, like, that. like he, he was going to mug him. And Hill began to argue with him and began to speak with him. And this is a highwayman. And he offered this guy uh, an honest job if he would visit him later. And the robber, he did. He visited him later, became a devout Christian, came into the employ of the pastor in the church and a devoted worker. Nobody knew, I, I, you know, I think wisely. He didn't feel like everyone needed to know about this until he passed. But he thought, what a tremendous testimony of a life before Christ and a life after Christ and what the gospel has capacity to do. To make a thieving man an honest worker. Why? Because he loves his Savior. That is a tremendously good word, right, for us to hear in our day and age. When we are tempted by all kinds of means to white-collar crime and dishonesty, right, work diligently, give, be generous. Why? Because our God is generous. we got to move a lot quicker. Point two, walk in spirit-minded ministry. Verses 29 through 30. Look at verse 29, and we'll look at first edifying speech. <clears throat> verse 29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may grieve grace to those who hear it. Now, to some degree, this seems like a repeat of what we've had earlier in verse 25, Right? Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. But there, it had been talking about how we speak truth because we are members of each other. Here, verse 29, is saying you use your words, 
right? In such a way that you edify. That's a building word. I know it's become a Christian word. And so because of that, we just kind of know it as you build each other up. But it is a building construction word. It's a term that means to put brick upon brick and to build up the sides of, of, the, of the edifice or the structure that you're trying to raise. This is how we are to view our ministry in the body of Christ. No corrupting talk. Corrupting is a term for rotting wood. We've had termites before. We had to tent the house. It wasn't that bad, you know, but, you know, they, pick, they kick out these, like, small pellets that I thought was, like, their excrement, but it's actually, like, it's kind of their excrement. It's, it's like the wood that they digested and they just kick it out. And so you can imagine your wood is kind of filled with all of these holes because they're just eating it, right? And so that, combined with water, would make the wood rot. And if you have seen kind of rotting wood, like on an old structure, if you just kick it, it'll just kind of crumble apart, right? It is rotting. Well, same term, corrupting, could be used of meats or fish, right? You leave that out long enough, and it starts to kind of decay and gets all nasty, right? That's corrupting. It is to, to take something and to cause it to rot or to break down in and of itself, let there be no corrupting talk. That means that stop speaking words that tear down one another in the body of Christ. Do you understand that? In contrast to that, only such as is good for edifying, for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those that hear. Why am I saying this is a spirit-minded thing? We'll get to that. That's in verse 30 because it's connected to not grieving the Holy Spirit. But the point here is that we are to be characterized as this new humanity, as a Christian, that we speak words that don't tear down. They don't injure or cause people to lose hope. You know, that, that is what our family sometimes calls coach speech, right? Because like, especially if it's sports and stuff. And I think I've mellowed over the years, but I, I used to always, like with the girls in particular, I'd be like, come on, get up, let's go, let's go. Wait. Like I just give them coach speech, right? And I'd talk to them kind of loudly, maybe with a tinge of anger or irritation, and I'd tell them what they are doing wrong. Some of you might feel like you are gifted to tell people what they are doing wrong. If you're not careful, because there, there is room for encouraging and exhorting and rebuking. But if you're not careful, that could be just merely corrupting talk. It could be something that, that robs individuals of the joy of the work or the ministry or the life they have in Christ. It could rob them, right, of the life-giving nature of why this is a good thing, why this glorifies God, why it's fun to do this. You could sap hope out of an individual by your sarcasm, right, by your meanness, by emphasizing the negativity and how you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And you could do that to the point of corruption, of aiming your, your, your rot gun, right, at a brother and sister in Christ. This is the opposite of what you are to use your mouths for. The Christian mouth speaks differently. It speaks only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. We are to be thoughtful about what's the right time to bring this up. It needs to fit the occasion. What's the right way to bring this up? It needs to fit the occasion. It needs to build somebody up and to build up the body as a whole because it maybe it needs to be said, but it needs to be said in such a way that brings love and care 
attention and holiness all together in one place. It is artful and difficult and demands maturity, and most of us are not good at it. But we are to, to grow into it. Every single one of you guys that are parents, when you first had your first kid, you weren't good at it. Some of you are young parents right now, first-time parents, and you think, what are you talking about? I'm really good. I read these books, right? There's stuff that they don't get to eat this stuff. Got to keep them away from Pastor Nan because you can give them donuts too early because they can't have that kind of sugar, right? Sugar rots the brain and cause all kinds of disease, right? Like you have all, you think you're good at it. You're not. None of us are. We're not good at anything. Just like when we learned to walk, we weren't good at it, right? You've seen these babies learn to walk? It's so fun and wonderful. And I love it. But it's shocking that they have figured it out because they're kind of like, like, you're like, dude, like that's, that's worse than drunken walking. Like, what, what is going on? And how did they figure this out? You're not good at it. When you learn to speak, when you learn to do math, you're not good at a whole bunch of stuff. That, that's why we need to be built up and we need to mature in the things of the Lord. And those that are older in Christ, we ought to speak in such a way that is good for building up, that fits the occasion. And look at that last part so that we understand exactly what we're talking about. That it may give grace to those who hear. The net effect of Christ-saturated speech is that it gives grace. And what do we mean by that? Well, it means that it gives grace or it renders. It comes with kind of this effect of kindness, mercy, and love. That's another way of saying grace. That is connected with things of Jesus Christ and God and our salvation and how good our God is. Right? It connects us to the gospel. It's a means of grace. That's what we mean by grace. That it tends to lean towards forgiving and mending and reconciling and accepting of one another. Why? Because again, it is not because they are not sinners or because they are, are worthy of our kindness and our good words, but it is because they are God's people made in God's image that we want to build them up. And as occasion fits, we are just trying to use our words as a means of grace, as a means of drawing them closer to the things of Christ and to all the glory of a God that is kind to us beyond all measure and loves us. And because of his great love for us, has cleansed us down to our very conscience from every sin, sinful act, and sinful thought. And this is what it looks like. In Ephesians 5, we'll get there later. Verse 18 is that, you know, that, um, that classic verse, you know, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And what does what does, what does the ministry of our mouths look like when we're filled with the Spirit? The rest of the passage reads this way. This is Ephesians 5, 18 and following. Verse 19 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God our Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The ministry of our mouths becomes acts of thanksgiving and worship and thoughtfulness and encouragement for building up. It becomes everything that we want to see happen for good, not merely, hey, I thought you should know because I'm clever and I know this better than you. And if no one says anything, then you might turn into a fool or you might remain a fool like you are. And I just thought that you should know that I know better. If that's what the ministry of your mouth sounds like, that's not a means of grace. But it feels like people 
love the things of Christ a little bit more. And they feel like, okay, I, I think I understand something about what it means to be kind as a Christian a little bit more. Then you are using your sanctified lips well. The second part of it, I said, of walking in spirit-minded ministry. And the reason why um, the, it, it, we call it walk in spirit-minded ministry is because using our, our speech in a way that is very distinctly Christian and edifying and building up is a means of pleasing the Holy Spirit, according to verse 30. Verse 29 said, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And then verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The and is significant because it connects this. This isn't just some random thing that Paul just drops in the middle of, Hey, you know, use your words to build up. By the way, don't hurt the Spirit. Right? He is connecting those things in his mind by, by the influence of the Holy Spirit. He's connecting these things. God is connecting these things for us so that as we're thinking about how we are to use our mouths to build up one another, to give grace to one another, not doing that apparently grieves the Holy Spirit of God. We could do a whole message on the fact that the Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity. It is a pet peeve of mine. Right. This last week, I got to be part of a, a church planning assessment for the SBC through the SEND network. Um, and I'm glad to do that. And uh, individuals that come through that are sometimes theologically a little bit different from us. But as a pet peeve of mine, if on the short doctrinal part, they you know, describe the Heavenly Father, right? describe the Son, describe the... And they just need to put a few sentences. Some of them put really good statements. Some of them just short sentences. And occasionally, someone will say, the Holy Spirit is, is, is God, right? Um, that part's true. And then they'll say, it is the power that transforms us. It has the capacity to do, and I'm like, you know, and I, I sometimes say stuff, sometimes I don't, but if I do say something, I go, hey, just so you know, right, um, this, the, the word pneuma that we use for the Holy Spirit, right, pneuma in Greek is neuter. It's not masculine, it's not feminine, it's neuter. Yet, when other scriptures use a pronoun for the Holy Spirit, it uses the masculine, singular. Now, what we're to take away from that is not masculinity. That's not the point. What we're to take away from that is the Spirit's not a thing. It's a person. He is a person, right? Not it is a person. It is a thing. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Yet he, as Scripture constantly uses, right, the masculine pronoun for him, he is a person, and apparently he can be grieved. And in this context, what grieves him? What injures the heart of God, the third person, of the Holy Spirit? Us using corrupting talk. Us tearing down fellow believers in Christ. I mean, this is serious. If I told you you are offending God, you might go, oh, dude, I better not offend God. But if we said, hey, I know for a fact God, God is brokenhearted because of this, there's something about that that's a little more, I don't know, motivating to me. I mean, maybe I'm just different that way. But I think about it like you think about it like your own moms, if you love your moms. I, I trust that most of you do, right? Um, but if you love your mom, 
If I said, dude, you know, you better go get things right because I don't know what you said or what you did, but your mom is mad at you, you might go, all right, I'll eventually get things right. But if I said, hey, um, I'm not sure what happened, but your mom is in the car crying because something you said, I think that strikes a chord with us that's a little deeper, right? To say that I have injured someone that I care for so much. This isn't just a human being, a human mother or father or someone where you say, this is God, the third person of the Trinity, who is the main means by which your eyes were opened to the gospel of truth, which is the means, he is the means by which we have been transformed so that we saw what we ought to be or what we could be. He is the only means and the, the, the only reason why we received the truth and this book gave us life. This book, we can understand word, grammar, phrases, sections, context. We can understand that with human minds. But for it to transform us and to give us life, what we read today in Psalm 1, that we would meditate upon the words of God and that would bring life-giving energy and, and purpose to us can only be done because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is the reason why rebels like us could come to know God. There's a whole bunch of stuff we could say about the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us, according to chapter 1, verse 13, right, for what is to come. He indwells us. That's a promise all the way back from Ezekiel 36. He count, he's our counselor. He counsels us. He convicts this world of sin. He convicted us of sin. He teaches us in John 16. And, and he is the evidence that God's love has been poured out into us in Romans 5, 5. This is our Holy Spirit, our God. And we can bring him grief or pain by using our words in a way that tear down instead of build up. And it reminds us, this is the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You have been rescued and sealed and guaranteed to be delivered, right, to eternal life because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he's the one that you are poking in his heart because you choose to use corrupting talk. Walk in spirit-minded ministry, building up, edifying. We'll do the last one very quickly. Walk in redeemed consistency. Walk in redeemed consistency. In some ways, verses 31 to 32 is a summary of what has already been stated. And so if you're going to memorize this portion of Scripture, these two verses would be a great one to memorize, right? Because it kind of encapsulates a lot of the other stuff that has happened already. And to walk in redeemed consistency, this is what I mean. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, so live like it. Verse 31, this is the stuff you put off, right? Put off all sorts of bitterness. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. We describe these briefly. Bitterness is that resentment of heart that is baked in. Baked in is a great term. Because, you know, like, you know, like you get a stain in your clothes and you didn't realize it. Like maybe it's a blood stain, grass stain. And then you wash those clothes and then it goes to the dryer. Now it's baked in. All right. That thing is ruined. I mean, it faded a little bit, but it still has that grassy kind of look to it. Right. It's ruined because once it goes to the dryer, once it's baked in, that stain is permanent. That's what bitterness is. It's sinful anger stewed in our souls to the point that it is baking in. And it's hard for us to remove the stain of that because it keeps rising again and again in our souls because it's kind of embedded there. 
Wrath and anger are two expressions of what anger feels like. One is immediate, like, you know, like, mm, it's the wrath that's coming out. Anger could be the more stewing part of that. Nevertheless, two ways of thinking about sinful anger that's self-focused and demanding of what is wrong in this world and what is right in us. Clamor is literally the, the outburst. It's the loud, verbal kind of, now I'm actually yelling at you. I'm cursing you out. I am demonstrating out loud how, anger, um, how angered I am. And put these away along with all malice. Paul says, this is what it means to put off the old nature, all the things that you are like, all the ways that the pagan is like. And then put on graciousness. That's point B. And this is verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I, I, th- I think we're supposed to you know, we're supposed to compare and contrast these. Verse 31, this is what it looks like. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Well, I didn't even mention slander. Slander is speaking in ways that, that are untrue or that are cruel about someone's character. Right? Put all that away from you along with all things that are malicious or angry or have evil intention. And instead, put on this. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving, forgiveness. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. There's a, there's a consistency, right, of graciousness that every child of God should exhibit in their lives. There should be kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving. Why? Because that's what we receive from our Savior. And just in our attitudes and in our conduct, we can demonstrate what the gospel is. Or we can, we can remove the reputation of the gospel, injure the Holy Spirit of God and bring ill repute to the name of Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake in living out the new life. To live consistently in the gospel is to train ourselves to think because we think before we act. We think before we speak. We think before it becomes a stewed thing in our souls. To control our thought life in a way that is transformed by the gospel of grace. Live out the new life in Christ because if you have placed your faith in Christ, That is the new you. It's the new humanity. It's what Christianity should distinctly look like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us and ask that you would bless the rest of this Lord's Day according to your purposes. We praise you that every individual that is here has heard, Lord, not just the scriptures, not just heard the songs that we sing, but has repeatedly heard the message of the grace of God in Jesus Christ for our salvation Would you call sinners to yourself? And would you call the redeemed to live in ways that are consistent with their calling so we might please you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.